2: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. I'm so glad that you could join us, so glad that our guests today could join us. I'm excited about this show, and I know I say that pretty much every week, but I am really, really excited about this show because it's based upon a new book that's just come out called Energy, Overdevelopment, and the Delusion of Endless Growth. And one of the things that uh, this book is so... Um, unique in doing is that not only does it have the perspectives of many different uh, writers, there is a great collaboration and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but some of the photos that were included are things I've never seen before. And in fact, the cover photo is so striking and quite frankly horrifying that it's one of those things you just can't unsee the cover photo is a close up of the deep water horizon bp oil rig that uh, I'm looking at it right now when it exploded and started to uh, to start the terrible league in the Gulf of Mexico that we all remember. Uh, This is a close-up photo, and it's just breathtaking. Our guest today is Richard Heinberg. He's a senior fellow in residence at the Post Carbon Institute. He's one of the contributors to the book and uh, also a favorite on Go Green Radio. We've had you on before, Richard, when we were talking about your book, The End of Growth, Adapting to Our New Economic Reality, and it's a great pleasure to have you back on. Welcome.
3: Well, it's great to be on with you again, Jill. Thank you.
2: Well, you know, before we talk about the book, uh, this new book, I'd like to give you a chance to introduce our listeners to the Post Carbon Institute. Tell us more about that organization before we dive into the book itself.
3: Sure. Post Carbon Institute is a non-profit think tank, and we work primarily with uh, with energy issues, and, and we, we try to uh, educate folks. Uh, policy makers and the general public, uh, about our, our energy situation. Uh, and, and we do so without, um, without the usual rose colored glasses of either the, uh, the fossil fuel industry or, uh, for that matter, the renewables in- industry. We, uh, we are, we hope to take a, a realistic view that, uh, um there are limits all around uh the uh, our dependence on fossil fuels of course is our biggest energy problem for the for the 21st century and getting off of fossil fuels is, is really going to be the task of, of this century for all societies. Whether we engage with it deliberately and, and, uh, proactively with lots of planning or just let nature take its course with depletion and climate change, one way or the other, this century is going to be about getting off of fossil fuels. So, um, we We look at uh, the energy situation and we also look at, wh- at how society needs to adapt and change uh, as this as the energy mix changes uh, mm-hmm. so you know rather than just assuming that we'll unplug the coal power plant and plug in the uh, the wind uh, turbine and just keep going exactly as we are we, we look at how Um, our current economic infrastructure has been built around fossil fuels. So as our energy sources change, um, a lot of the way we live is going to change, uh, especially transportation and trade, but also agriculture, the way we build our houses, uh, the way we live from day to day. All of that is going to change. And if we, if we engage with those changes proactively, we believe we can actually have a better quality of life uh, as a result. Well, I think what's so interesting to
2: me, and and this is because I've been in this environmental sector, if you will, from the nonprofit standpoint for many years, the uh, over a decade. And I have seen just about everything that's out there in terms of organizations. And what's refreshing about the Post Carbon Institute is that um, – your agenda is not to push some solution necessarily uh, in terms of a technology, a replacement technology for fossil fuels, um, and and instead, your agenda seems to be to increase the energy literacy of. Uh, those who who take a look at your materials, such that at every local community, every state, and of course at the national level, citizens, everyday citizens can feel empowered and engaged um, in these energy decisions. And I, right. I appreciate that unique aspect of your organization. Well, now let's talk about the book. Um, Great. Give us sort of the thumbnail sketch, the overview of the goal of this book. Um, what do you hope to achieve by getting this book out into as many hands as possible?
3: Okay. Well, first of all, the book is, um, for for those who haven't seen it, it's a coffee table book. It's a huge book. Uh, in, in fact, you could put four legs on it and it would be a coffee table. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, it's a fairly long book. You know, it's uh, over 300 pages and, and it has, as you mentioned earlier, lots of photographs in it. So there are essays by uh, energy experts, national security experts, farmers, ranchers, all kinds of people who are involved in the energy conversation. And the photos are photos of what energy production actually looks like, how much land it takes up, what it does to agricultural land or to uh, wild lands, mountains, and all the rest. And the purpose of the book, Is to help people come to terms with what's actually going on in the energy world because the energy world is changing very rapidly. If you, uh, if what you know about energy uh, is is more than four or five years old, then you're you're living in a different world from 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 the real world today, because the the real world today is a, a world of extreme energy. Uh, we are going after uh, energy sources in the most remote places using extreme technologies that are environmentally risky and costly. Um, and folks need to understand that. So that's that was really the purpose of the book. The book was a collaboration between our organization, Post Carbon Institute, and the Foundation for Deep Ecology, which came to us with the idea, uh, Foundation for Deep Ecology has a track record of producing these these big environmental books on uh, mountaintop removal, coal mining, uh, clear cutting. Uh, they did a, a book called Fatal Harvest a number of years ago about industrial agriculture, confined animal operations, and so on. And their strategy with these books is to produce these huge books that that you just have to look at you can't ignore them and uh, and then uh, gift the books in large numbers to environmental organizations to use in their uh, activist uh, efforts so our our work with this book is largely to get it in the hands of, uh, of local environmentalists uh, who can then uh, put it in the hands of local policymakers. makers. Uh, we're accumulating photographs of this book sitting on the coffee tables of representatives in Washington, D.C. Mm. Um, and, you know, when somebody comes into a, a waiting room and sees this book on the, on the coffee table, they're going to look at it because it's a compelling object. So that's 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 basically what we're trying to do.
2: Well, and just as you know, somebody who who goes out and I, I do a lot of public speaking, and I'm doing more and more on energy. I would love to see some of these photos released, you know, with photo credits to the photographers, sure. of course, for people to use in PowerPoint presentations because that would be really helpful to folks well, like me who want to spread the word.
3: That happens to be part of our strategy. So if you go to our our website. Um, that's uh, that's connected with the book. You can you can find a link, uh, or soon will be able to find a link to the uh, to the photos that you can use in your powerpoints.
2: Right on. That's great. Um, so. You wrote a section that I really appreciated. It's something we've talked a little bit about on Go Green Radio, but I'd like to get into it in a little bit more um, depth, and that is uh, the section called A View from Oil's Peak. Now, some of our listeners are familiar with the term peak oil, some are not. Can you give us a working definition of that term and what the significance
3: is of reaching peak oil? Right. Well, the basic definition is... Um, uh it's the moment when world oil production maxes out and begins to decline. We know it's going to happen. Nobody doubts that. It's just a question of of when. And there are the near peakers and the far peakers. The far peakers say, well, it's not going to happen until later this century sometime, uh certainly after twenty thirty. And the near peakers are saying, well, no, look, the evidence suggests it's it's happening basically right now. Uh, and the evidence that, that uh we near peakers uh, and I include myself in that, that definition, uh, point to includes the fact that uh, world oil discoveries have been declining generally since the early 1960s and actual world oil production, if you just look at crude oil, uh, maxed out around 2005. Uh, today's oil production is is just a fraction of 1% higher than, than 2005. But remember during this period of time, oil prices have gone through the ceiling. Uh, if you go back a decade, the, all of the international agencies, energy agent, the International Energy Agency, the U.S. Department of Energy, everybody was forecasting that we'd have twenty dollars a barrel oil, as uh, uh, far as the eye can see. Mm-hmm. But uh, starting in, in uh, the last decade, the oil price has has climbed and climbed and climbed. Right now, the world oil price is close to one hundred twenty dollars a barrel. Uh, nobody a decade ago was talking about even the possibility of $120 a barrel oil, but here we are, and even with oil at, at that very high price, the industry is really not producing any more. So the the reason for that is that the cheap, easy oil is gone. Yes, the industry is developing uh, more sophisticated technology to go after lower quality resources, whether it's tar sands or or tight oil in in North Dakota and they're having some success with that but they but they they have to uh work against declines in production from existing oil fields the the giant reservoirs that were discovered back in the 1950s 60s and 70s and so the net result is we're going nowhere. And over the next few years, we, we forecast that world oil production will begin its, its historic, inevitable decline. And, uh, and that's going to have enormous implications for our way of life. <laughs>
2: Well, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. I mean, how much? It, it's so much more than transportation. There's so much more, um, you know, to our way of life that that is centered around oil. And, and you know, I even see this in my own life. I have had the same. Dodge Caravan uh, that I've been driving since September of 1998 when I bought it, and I remember being just completely torqued that um, it, oil, or I mean, a, a gallon of gas at that point was 98 cents a gallon, and it took a whole twenty dollar bill to fill my tank, and that just went all through me. I was so ticked off, but um, you know now. I would give anything to fill my tank for for that. Same car. I'm still driving it. But, you know, I think, you know, what you said to maybe translate this to the kitchen table is that if oil prices at this price – uh, you know, if companies could be producing more to make maximum profits, uh, it seems like economically they would be, and yet right. production is leveling off. So right. I think that's a really important aha moment for the world to, to take a look at. And what we know is that oil sands and you know oil shale uh are so much dirtier and so much more difficult to you know to refine and to uh, glean as much energy from those forms of oil um compared to conventional oil The way that I typically talk about it is we've gone from cheap to deep. All the cheap stuff that was easy to extract is nearly gone, and now we're going after the deep stuff, and that's where more cost and more risk comes into play. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Richard Heinberg and the book Energy Overdevelopment and the Delusion of Endless Growth. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just before the break, we were talking about this, um, evolution of the production of oil where we've gone from a time when, you know, you stick a drill in the ground and, you know, hit this large pool of easy to access crude oil, suck it up out of the ground, and you get an energy return on investment that's incredibly high. Um, and now we've, we've tapped out a good deal of, of that kind of oil, and we're starting to look at other technologies, uh, deeper, uh, more risky uh, ways of sucking oil out of the ground. And I'd like for you, Richard, to talk about the promise or maybe the, the fallacy of some of these other technologies that, that the oil industry is is selling very hard, even to the extent that they've got commercials on cable news talking about tar sands and oil shale and all of these various technologies so that we don't have to worry our pretty little heads about lack of oil. Talk to us about the reality of those technologies.
3: Sure, Jill. The the oil industry, oil and gas industry, I should say, is on a real PR offensive, and there's there's a reason for that. Uh, the the new technology that's being deployed, mostly uh, hydrofracking and horizontal drilling, is aimed at resources that geologists have known about for a long time, but but we're not able to. The oil companies were not able to produce these oil and gas resources because the prices were too low. Uh, they need a high-price environment in order to justify using the sophisticated technology to produce these low-grade resources. Well, in the last few years, we have seen much higher prices. And so small uh, companies that are willing to take on a lot of risk have gone after... Uh, oil in North Dakota, in the Eagle Ford, uh, formation in South Texas, uh, natural gas in, in the Barnett Shale, in the, in the Marcellus Shale, and so on. And, uh, in the case of natural gas, uh, Wall Street basically forced them to overproduce, uh, in order to meet their, uh, their IP offerings and, and so on. And, uh, and the result has been a, 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 a temporary natural gas glut. And of course the, the, um, the common wisdom now is that the U.S. has a hundred years of cheap natural gas. Uh, we at Post Carbon Institute have, uh, have undertaken some analysis. We've per- purchased rights to the industry database. We have thorough data on over 63,000 oil and gas wells. We're coming out with a report next month, uh, in which we, um, show the analysis very clearly Indicates that hot, very high per well decline rates mean that this is really just about a five to ten year window when we're going to have significant amounts of gas from hydrofracking and oil from the Bakken in North Dakota and from the Eagle Ford in South Texas. Uh, and we're already halfway through that five to ten year, uh, window. So this is, this is a short term uh boom boom and bust cycle and the bust is not that far away so uh people and when I say people I mean really policy makers should not be uh, fooled by the industry hype of uh, what we're seeing is a very high cost very high risk very temporary uh phase in the decline of the fossil fuel industry
2: Well, and I think there are a couple of issues worth mentioning as well. In terms of this natural gas glut, it's done a couple of things. First of all, it's created so much supply that now we're exporting natural gas. So for us to say that the United States has a 100 year supply of natural gas, um, is on shaky ground when you start talking about exporting it to other countries. Right. If we're, if we're Actually, not keeping it domestic, then that, that number of years of, of, you know, natural gas supply is diminished every time we export it overseas.
3: Right. Now, uh, we are exporting some, but on a net basis, the U.S. is actually importing more natural gas than it exports. The, what's happening is uh, uh, LNG, liquefied natural gas, export terminals are being planned and built with the assumption that we have this hundred years of cheap natural gas. Now, as... Uh, well what 's actually happening right now is because there is a supply glut, the price of natural gas has been driven down below the actual cost of production. Mm-hmm. Uh, these companies are losing money hand over fist in terms of actual natural gas production they're making money on arbitrage uh, on drilling for oil on the side and and uh, and so on but but in terms of natural gas they're actually losing money so what has to happen and what will happen over the next few years is that is that uh, production will decline and prices will go up. So the the actual exports of liquefied natural gas that uh, so many people are planning for are never going to happen.
2: Well, and here's another sad little piece to all this. I mean, what what happened in conjunction with this, you know, fracking boom for natural gas is that the manufacturing sector, which we all know is starving for jobs, was saying to the EPA, look, you want us to meet these clean emissions, clean air standards, um, and we can't do that on dirty fuel. And so they were... Thrilled to be able to create the electricity they needed in order to run their plants on natural gas. And right now, um, you know, for companies who are trying to bring back manufacturing jobs, low natural gas prices are being built into the budget. And this is a great thing for our manufacturing sector. However, like you said, I mean, the, the companies that are doing the fracking are surviving on investment capital, not on the actual sale of their product. And you know, by definition, they are going to have to raise prices in order to stay in business and create this supply of natural gas. And that's going to hurt the manufacturing industry when we have that come-to-Jesus moment where they actually have to, you know, match up their their revenue with their, with their expenses, not based on investment capital, but based on, you know, the, the sale of their product.
3: Right. Another thing that's happening is that uh, the... Uh uh the the electricity generation industry, the, the power utilities have been shifting over to using natural gas rather than coal mm-hmm. uh as a result of the low coal the low natural gas prices. And in some ways of course that's that's a good thing. But the uh the assumption is that burning natural gas uh is much better for the climate. And at the burner tip, that's true, the much lower uh, CO2 emissions come from burning, uh, natural gas as opposed to coal. But if you look at the entire life cycle, uh, greenhouse gas emission profile for fracking gas, it's actually worse than coal. Why is that? Because, uh, in the process of, uh, producing and transporting natural gas, which is mostly methane, there's a lot of methane that escapes into the atmosphere. And methane over a sh- the short period, less than 20 years, is almost 100 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. So if you if you look at the full life cycle greenhouse gas emission profile for fracking gas, it's actually worse than that for coal.
2: Well, and I think there's another, it's not as much a climate related situation, but another dirty little secret of the fracking process is what is happening with the water that's used to create these wells. Right. As we know, the, the, the water that is forced, you know, at high pressure into the, the wells in order to release the gas is made up of chemicals that we don't necessarily know what they are. Of course, water, millions of gallons of water per, uh, well and sand. And when that when that mix is extracted, instead of it being held in above ground tanks for everybody to see exactly how much water is involved with this fracking process and how much water is um, unusable in terms of being able to be cleaned up and put back into the water cycle. Instead, it's injected into the ground and in, in underwater wells, which, you know, of course, there's a lot of controversy about whether or not those are safe and whether or not they could be, you know, poisoning aquifers. But at a minimum, removing that many millions of gallons of water from the water cycle, um, I think if people could see in above ground wells what we're talking about in terms of the sheer amount of water involved in fracking, it would be pretty shocking. And when you've got the entire Plain State area of the United States still under drought conditions, and that's right. where a good deal of our food is produced and, and other areas of the region dealing with water shortages, um, I think that that would be a big uh, a big shocker to the American well,
3: it's, public. Well, it's, it's a big constraint on how much of this uh uh unconventional gas and oil can actually be produced if we don't have the water resources then we're not going to produce uh the oil or gas resources.
2: Mhm. Well, you know, there's a lot of folks that are, you know, still doubting climate change, still You know, in that boat. And, uh, you know, I, I'm certainly not on a mission to change their minds. But even the U.S. military has recognized that the melting Arctic ice is creating a lot of traffic up in the Arctic Circle. Some of it is something we need to keep an eye on militarily. It's, it could open trade routes, but it's also exposing areas that you know, oil and gas explorers are getting very excited about <laughs> right. um, The drill baby drill crowd, what can we say about going after the, the resources in the Arctic Circle?
3: Well, you know, so far, most of the efforts have uh, have been frustrated by the very, very difficult operating conditions up there. Uh, Shell has has had some pretty bad luck operating up up north of of Alaska in the Arctic Circle uh, in recent times, and uh, and the Russians also are. are uh, everyone knows that there is oil and gas up there, probably more gas than oil, but the the operating conditions are going to be so forbidding and of course the environmental risks uh fewer people are talking about that but the environmental risks are in, enormous because of course these are these are fragile uh environments and of course the uh, the arctic ice is probably going to be gone in midsummer uh, uh within just a few years uh so we're talking about environments that are already, uh, threatened species that, uh, that migrate to and from these, these regions as part of their, uh, their natural life cycle, uh, will certainly be, uh, threatened by, uh, development of, of these fragile, uh, ecosystems for oil and gas production.
2: Well, and if you have a big spill up in that area, I mean, we know that a lot of the the world's currents are determined by, you know, ocean currents are determined by what happens in the Arctic Circle. You have a spill up there, and who knows where that could end up. Uh, so it's not just confined to the Arctic Circle area itself. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much, much more uh, with Richard Heinberg and this great new book. You've got to check it out. It's called Energy, Overdevelopment and the Delusion of Endless Growth. We'll be back right after this.
1: News. News. Opinion. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 472 5787 VoiceAmerica.com.
0: By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health and Wellness.
1: Take a wild guess. about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast, all the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you're with us today, because um, you know there's a concept that's a part of the book that Richard and I are talking about that says energy policy is everybody's business, and that's so true. When you think about all of the ways in which our society and our our way of living, things we take for granted every day, are built around uh, a supply of finite natural resources, namely oil, coal, and natural gas. And because they are finite, eventually they will be diminished to the point where we're going to have to make some significant changes in either how much energy we use or where we get that energy. And it is everyone's business because our entire standard of living um, is built around this energy supply or lack thereof. And Richard, you know, I think most people understand that less oil or Maybe the the partner or the cousin of that more expensive oil would deeply impact our transportation sector. But I think a lot of people don't realize how dependent our agricultural industry is on oil. So besides the obvious use of petroleum needed to transport food from the farm to the grocery store, what are some of the other ways that oil is so critical to our current food system?
3: Well, if you look at our food system as a whole, we spend about Uh, seven calories of fossil fuel energy for every calorie of food that we produce, and we do that uh, in uh, in terms of nitrogen fertilizer, which we make from natural gas, uh, in terms of pesticides and herbicides that are uh, made from oil or natural gas, in terms of uh, the fuels that we use in tractors and other farm equipment, and then uh, you mentioned the, the transport of the food. Then there's the processing of the food and the packaging of the food, often in plastics that are made out of fossil fuels, so fossil fuels are absolutely essential to our modern food system. That's an enormous vulnerability because, of course, fossil fuels are, are going away as, as the century proceeds, either either proactively or just as a result of, of depletion. At the same time, uh, we, we see... Uh, fossil fuel prices, especially oil prices going up and that causes the price of food to go up. Uh, we've had some oil price spikes in the last few years, uh, especially in, in 2008 and now uh, in the last couple of years the price of oil has gone back up over $100 a barrel and that has meant the price of food has gone up to record levels worldwide and, and that has stoked uh, uh, civil unrest in places like Egypt where 80% of their food is is imported. At the same time that's happening, of course, the fact that our food system depends upon uh, oil is expressed in climate change because as we burn oil, as we use fossil fuels, uh, that results in more greenhouse gas emissions, which, claim, which change climate, which re- results in uh, extreme weather events, which then in turn uh, have an effect on the agricultural, uh, the success of the agricultural industry. So we have drought, you mentioned, in, in much of the U.S. That's resulted in, in much lower corn, soybean, and other crop yields over the past year than otherwise would have been the case. So our global food system is highly vulnerable to its dependence on oil uh, for both environmental reasons and also economic reasons.
2: Well, I know that a lot of the oil that's consumed is consumed within the transportation industry. So let's say... That, you know, by some wave of the magic wand, we were able to electrify a good deal of our transportation sector. Instead of burning oil products to fuel transportation, we were using electricity. And. If we were to look at alternatives to oil for our transportation industry, a lot of people say, well, there's still a lot of coal left and coal can be used to create electricity. So let's invest in clean coal technologies so that we can burn that coal and not create you know, more difficulties with climate change. What is your thought on uh, meeting global energy demands with clean coal, clean coal technology?
3: Uh, well, our analysis at Post Carbon Institute suggests that clean coal, uh, is, is an energy source of the future and always will be. Uh, in other words, it's not going to happen. We, we will see some pilot projects developed, but what happens with clean coal is you, you're, uh, essentially capturing the CO2 that would otherwise go into the atmosphere and instead concentrating that and burying it, it that in the ground, well, that costs energy and it costs money. So it, it results in higher cost of electricity produced from coal. Right now, uh, natural gas is actually cheaper than coal for electricity production. That's not likely to stay true for long, but, but, but it is the case right now. Uh, if if we add significantly to the cost of coal-based uh, electricity, other sources become cheaper than coal, including wind and solar. So there's we see no real economic future for carbon capture and storage from coal. Also, the world's coal supplies are far more limited than we've been led to think. Uh, there is good uh, geological data and analysis to suggest that world coal production will probably peak uh, sometime during the 2020s.
2: Hmm. Yeah, well, just just on the heels of peak oil will come peak coal. So um, this is this is going to be a, a continuing theme, it seems. that Now, we haven't talked about nuclear power. I mean, of course, um, it's not cheap to build a nuclear plant, but, um, you know, it is... Uh, a far better fuel in terms of carbon emissions um it's not intermittent it's it runs 24/7 like a coal plant would uh, as opposed to the intermittency of wind and solar uh what about nuclear energy i mean if we could find a safe way to store spent nuclear power rods could energy from nuclear pl- power plants save the day
3: Right. Well, that's that's a big if, Jill, and so far nobody has found a way to safely store uh, nuclear waste. Uh, this was a huge problem in Japan with the Fukushima uh, disaster. It wasn't just a matter of the power plants themselves. It was uh, the stored uh, waste, uh, ra- still radioactive fuel rods that resulted in so much uh, s- um, release of radioactivity into the environment. So that's still a huge problem, as you mentioned. It's expensive, and that's the main reason the nuclear industry is basically dead in the water right now. There was a, a very good article, uh, actually, it was the, uh, the cover article of the Economist magazine back in April of 2012, doing a pretty thorough analysis of, of the world nuclear industry. And as as you know, the Economist magazine is is not an environmental. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh magazine it's it's, it's purely... one of my favorite magazines and yeah, actually, yeah, that it's, issue it's, is on my bookshelf. <laughs> just information, just the facts ma'am and um, and their conclusion was that the the nuclear industry really has not much of a future.
2: Mm-hmm. Even though I know that there are new technologies that are being worked on that would bring it down to size, down to scale, um, still very difficult, especially from a, a capital investment and return on investment economic picture, just very difficult to justify.
3: Right. The, o- about- the, only, the only places nuclear uh, is, is still making any advances are places where it's being uh, supported massively by government injection of funds.
2: Well, arguably, though, Richard, I mean, any form of energy past the, the peak of our natural resource pool of energy fuels is going to require massive right. investment on the part this of government. This is true. So, yep. uh, you know, it, it, once we all realize that this is critical to our survivability and our ability to thrive, I think, you know, that's going to necessitate huge investments of whatever technology you pick, um, yeah you know, that's that's going to be a a given. What about hydropower? I mean that's pretty clean and in some regions that's uh that's a great source of electricity. Is there more untapped potential in this sector? Could we start looking to to developing more hydropower?
3: Well, in some cases yes. Globally there are regions where more uh hy- hydropower could be developed. Now, if we're talking about giant uh dams, the the environmental costs are pretty staggering and most of the ecologists that I know would would uh, really like to see a lot of existing dams taken out rather than new ones built. Uh on the small scale for the uh, community scale or or homestead scale um, there are technologies for harnessing uh uh streams, micro hydro that don't necessarily disrupt the the stream ecology uh at least not not substantially um, here in the US we we have pretty much tapped out our hydro resources if if we dammed all of the potential sites uh that are not yet dammed we could perhaps double our hydro capacity but if we did that it certainly wouldn't uh displace coal and natural gas it would uh uh, we, we would we, we would still need some substantial other sources of electricity.
2: Well, and personally, one of my biggest concerns about hydropower, besides the obvious environmental risks, is that you know if what we see in a lot of climate change reports and studies is true. Um, our water system may become a lot more variable and a bit more uh, unpredictable than it is currently. I mean, you know, where we're seeing droughts or floods. I mean, um, to rely too heavily upon our current water systems for future um, sustainable and and non-intermittent energy might be a mistake. That might be a risky investment.
3: This is what we're seeing across the energy spectrum. And energy requires water, mm-hmm. and as water becomes a bigger and bigger factor, then it becomes problematic not just for uh, hydropower but also for nuclear because nu- oh, yeah. nuclear power plants need sources of water. Also for large uh, solar arrays, uh, solar thermal arrays, you know, uh, acres and acres of mirrors in the desert. Well, we have to wash those those mirrors off. So where does the water come from? Uh, Also water for hydrofracking. Uh, Mm -hmm. All across the energy spectrum, we're seeing limits to energy as a result of limits in our water supply.
2: Well, and not to mention the fact that even a coal plant uses water. I mean, they're creating steam. And the the thing that a lot of people don't realize is it's not just any old dirty water. You've got to run clean water through those plants because you can't run a bunch of particulate, you know, sandy, gunky water into the big mechanical devices that run these steam turbines. It's got to be clean. So our energy needs are competing with our needs for clean water for agriculture, for drinking, Etc. So the water G. The water and energy nexus is something that, um, you know, is, is beyond just fascinating from an academic standpoint. It is something that really needs to be upfront in any energy policy, um, that's considered. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have more with Richard Heinberg on energy and, and this wonderful new book, Energy Overdevelopment and the Delusion of Endless Growth. Don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
1: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck.
2: If you get nothing else from this, this show today, I hope you understand one simple truth. And that is, once we reach peak oil, there is no silver bullet for a replacement energy source that will solve all of our problems. We've been talking about a number of different technologies, a number of different options, and not a single one of them is capable of filling the void that oil currently fills in our economy and in our, our way of life, whether we're talking about powering our homes, our schools, our businesses, or even powering and providing the energy required for our modern agricultural system. And so one of the things that I'm sure all my friends who are in the renewable industry are waiting for, Richard, is your assessment of the role that renewables, uh, particularly solar and wind, will play um, as our supplies of fossil fuels decline. Can we reasonably uh, expect renewable energy to fill the void
3: that oil will leave? Well, clearly, there's a lot of room for development of renewables, and we should be, as a a nation, as a world, putting far more of our research and and, uh, development capital into the development of renewable energy. That said, there are limits there, too. You know, the s- sunshine is free, wind is free, but the technology that's required to capture those energy sources is not free. And it requires minerals. It requires uh, uh, energy for uh, for manufacturing and transport and ins- installation and so on. So there are limits with renewable energy as well. Um, now, Uh, that the trends with some of the renewables are, are very good. Uh, the trends with solar in particular are, uh, are very encouraging with decline in cost of, uh, electricity from solar power, uh, coming down quite rapidly. Uh, so that makes me, uh, most hopeful for solar power, uh, as As a replacement now it's, it 's when we say replacement in transportation we 're not talking about you know just unplugging all the oil wells and plugging in uh, solar um, uh, panels and keeping on going as we are. Realistically, we're looking at a world of much less mobility as this century winds on. Uh, nobody is working on electric aircraft that will carry 300 people at a time from continent to continent. Boeing isn't working on it. Uh, Airbus is not working on it. And the reason is it's it's physically pretty much impossible. The battery uh, technology is so far behind. Uh, a plane with a battery big enough to power, uh, uh, say, a seven forty seven would be far too heavy to take off. Mm-hmm. So, well, even just
1: look at the
2: battery issues with the seven eighty seven.
3: I mean, that's. Right. You know,
2: I mean, case in point, right there, boom—the lithium-ion batteries that you know are having so much difficulty operating properly. Um, you know, with the 787 Dreamliners, that's exactly the issue.
3: Right. So yes, uh, renewables can do a lot for us, but we can't expect them to power the way of life that we've gotten used to with cheap oil.
2: Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of environmentalists have realized and why they push back on some of the massive solar farms and wind farms is that, you know, when you look at the footprint of a coal plant, a nuclear plant, or any of these conventional power plants, they're very small in comparison to the land that's required to create Uh, you know, a a solar farm or wind farm that even begins to replace some of the energy that's produced in those conventional power plants. So, you know, it sounds like what we need to be talking about is not just... Uh, new energy technologies, but energy conservation. And in one of the articles that you wrote for the book, um, you discuss two things when you talk about energy conservation, curtailment and efficiency. And because I know how much you value energy literacy, I want you to make our listeners literate sure. on what those terms mean and how they can adopt them in their own lives out in front of this you know, declining energy dilemma that we're in. What can we do sure. right now?
3: Well, efficiency means accomplishing the same task with less energy input, and we can do that by changing our light bulbs, by buying cars that are more fuel-efficient or hybrid-powered cars, whatever, but curtailment just means not doing something that we might otherwise do, so that means driving less, for example, or turning off the lights uh, rather than leaving them on when we leave the room. Uh, and, you know, as energy prices go up, we will be doing both of these things. And if we plan for a world with less energy and, and less mobility, again, I think that world doesn't have to look like uh, some kind of forbidding, horrible future that nobody wants. It can actually be a very attractive future. It can be a, a world where we enjoy more local food, where we uh, where we know our neighbors and and work with our neighbors in in community gardens and, and things of that sort. Um, and in fact. Uh, uh, a lot of people choose that sort of lifestyle just because it's, it's more fulfilling. I know my wife Janet and I here, here in our little suburban house in, in Santa Rosa have been working along these lines for many years. We, we grow much of our own food in our backyard. We have three, uh, three lovely chickens that <laughs> provide <laughs> eggs for us and solar panels on the roof, uh, solar hot water and uh, solar cookers and, and so on. And, uh, yeah, all of these things take investment and work, but, you know, it turns out to be a much more satisfying way of life. And if we think that way on a large scale, I think the future could be actually a very happy one.
2: Well, and the hope that we all have is that, you know, we're not heading for some middle ages kind of existence. I mean, I I remember studying in history when that uh, took place. What a sad life it must have been for those who were living in abject poverty in the shadows of a formerly great civilization. You know, they could see, uh, you know, the the aqueducts of the Roman Empire above their heads and, you know, the, the roads that were built and all this advanced technology and that they were living in squalor and it must have been horrible mm-hmm. to have regressed to such a large extent and that's what we don't want. So planning is what's necessary in order to reasonably predict what's coming in the future and to plan for that, to plan to thrive. You know, we've got an opening in uh, the administration, Richard. It's uh, it's the secretary of the Department of Energy needs to be filled, and I'm just wondering if somebody tapped you for the job. What are the top three things you would do to get America on a sensible path that respects these energy realities that we face?
3: Yeah. Well, first of all, I would uh, I would put energy conservation at the center of our priorities. Uh, Second, I would uh, I would do some realistic analysis on the prospects for hydrofracturing. And I I suspect on the basis of our analysis at Post Carbon Institute that that would show that this is a a short-term bubble and we have to plan for the demise of the fossil fuel industry. And the the sooner we make those plans, the easier the transition is going to be. And finally, I would make it the job of the Department of Energy to do research on how all the other aspects of, of life like uh, building construction, transportation, and agriculture can be uh, rethought, reimagined for the 21st century uh, to use much, much less energy.
2: That sounds like a great roadmap, and uh, I, I hope that someone in the administration is listening to this broadcast and will take your, your advice to heart. Thank you for being with us, Richard. Tell us real quick before we have to go how people can get a hold of the book, Energy. Energy.
3: Well, you know, uh, you, you can go to the usual online book outlets like Amazon.com and, you know, the, the book is, as I mentioned earlier, this extraordinary huge eight pound coffee table book with full color photographs. Amazingly enough, it's, it's available on Amazon for like 30 bucks. I, I don't know it's how so they can worth do it. it.
2: it's so worth it I absolutely love it thank you so much for this book and thank you for joining us on Go Green Radio folks we'll be here same time same place next week and until then have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green